0: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Anthropology on the New Books Podcast Network. I'm Jacob Doherty, the host for this episode. And today we're talking to David Morton, Assistant Professor of African History at the University of British Columbia, and the author of Age of Concrete Housing and the Shape of Aspiration in the Capital of Mozambique, published in 2019 by Ohio University Press. The book is a beautifully written and illustrated account of how the built environment in popular neighborhoods is both shaped by and shapes social relations. It reads these spaces as archives of the dreams and aspirations of ordinary people. It details the practices through which Maputo has been built and transformed, and theorizes the different ways that the state has been strategically held off and invited into these domestic arenas. So it's a real pleasure to talk to um, its author, David Morton, today. David, uh, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Jacob. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Before we get into the book itself, can you tell us a bit about your background and how you came to this topic?
1: Sure. Uh, I used to be a journalist. I got my start at an architecture magazine, actually, in New York. Um, And I was uh, an investigative journalist for several years in Washington, D.C. and Cleveland, Ohio, and I was based for a year in Brazil, did stories on property fraud, stories on Prison conditions, and I—I uh, <laughs> I don't know what would tie all these to my my current work, other than they're they're all urban issues. Um, uh, my last journalism job was in Mozambique. I was uh, I was uh, corresponding with a, um, a a humanitarian news service called IRIN just for just for six months before I went to graduate school, um, and uh, that is what set me on my path in Mozambique. But to back up for a moment, um, the thing that set me off, set me on the path to uh, the built environment in Southern Africa was reporting I did uh, a long time ago, uh, 20 years ago in the late 90s. Uh, I had just gotten a start as a reporter and I was in South Africa uh, and I was meeting with architects and planners. Uh, this is five years after the democratic elections, just in time for the second round of democratic elections. And I was, I was talking to these architects uh, because I wanted to get a, a sense of what the new vernacular architecture of government building was gonna be in this new South Africa, this institutional architecture, which was going to be changing or was changing uh and it was no longer gonna be Cape Dutch. And as I, I went to you know, Pretoria, I went to Joburg, I went to Durban, I went to Cape Town, and was doing a pretty straightforward architecture story. And these were all architects who were also involved in uh RDP housing projects, that is to say the 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 housing that the ANC government was rolling out as quick as they could. Um to uh, deal with the, the longstanding housing crisis there. And uh, it was one of the major promises made by the, the ANC government. And the architects I was speaking to, uh, I should say architects slash planners, were distraught. They were upset because the projects they were working on at great speed and with little, very little resources were, to their mind, uh, recapitulating a lot of uh, apartheid era planning, except with, with smaller houses. Uh, I'm, I'm simplifying the story, uh, but for me, uh, what was important was that this, this relatively small piece that I was working on uh, really opened my eyes to how architecture and planning were historically embedded, socially embedded. Uh, which seems obvious to an anthropologist, seems obvious to a historian, uh, and it was not obvious to uh, a young journalist who liked buildings. And uh, so my introduction to South African history, to Southern African history, was through the eyes of these architects and planners trying to undo history, uh, and, or the... Rather the the damage done by history, and um, many years later, when I came back to Mozambique as a reporter, uh, and as a reporter who was headed, knowing, knowing I was headed to graduate school. Um, I was looking very carefully at the built environment of Maputo, uh, and I was looking at the neighborhoods that surrounded the downtown core. Uh, these neighborhoods are called the suburbios, uh, and, which can't be translated as suburbs. They are outlying areas. They're outside the city core. Uh, but they are types of neighborhoods that uh, are prevalent in most African cities, neighborhoods that don't uh, have uh, official planning. aren't. Uh, they don't necessarily have paved roads. They don't have Uh, a full complement of municipal services, electricity, sewage systems, running water, drainage. Uh, That picture's changing. Uh, At the time, uh, the neighborhoods looked a lot like they had uh, 10, 20 years, 30 years beforehand. But the the major thing was that these were not neighborhoods that uh, appear... In historical literature uh, or or don't appear frequently they're mentioned the historical actors that appear in urban histories live in neighborhoods like the suburbios of Maputo Uh, but the histories don't tend to discuss them as places that people made when I looked around me uh, as and this is true for anyone who visits the suburbios or any city in Southern Africa, uh, or most cities in Southern Africa, you uh, realize very quickly, if you have your historian's uh, glasses on, that these buildings, these houses are an archive, a, a pretty large archive. I mean, we're talking tens of thousands of houses, tens of thousands of households building those houses. And then it's, it's, it's a fascinating archive because it's an archive that changes over time. And it's also an archive that, while it changes over time, still maintains the traces of the past. And so that's where the project was born, which was looking at these places that are mere background in, in many histories of urban Africa, and to take them as the foreground. And that's the implicit argument of the book, that much of people's preoccupations, much of people's efforts, much of people's investments, personal, emotional, and otherwise, are embodied in these building projects.
0: So can you say a little about the, the research process that went into this, how did you go about sort of reading this archive and gathering the materials that um, led to the production of the book?
1: Yeah, it, well, first of all, it took a while. It's a very incremental process because the buildings, the houses, the structures, uh, urban space, um, maybe an archive, but it, it doesn't, it doesn't speak for itself. Uh, in fact, that's a big fallacy. If you, look at a building and think you know exactly what's going on uh, without talking to the people who live in it or who, who made it. Um, and so I knew that this was going to be an oral history project. Uh, I was going to be speaking to the people who lived and in their homes and built their homes over time. And so that's uh, as anyone listening to this podcast knows i um, a very involved Type of project that involves um, that requires you to get to know a lot of people and to knock on a lot of doors uh, and to have lots of conversations and to have lots of conversations over time. Um, I focused it project in one neighborhood in particular, Shamunkulu. It's one of the oldest uh, suburban neighborhoods. Uh, pretty much as old as the city itself um and uh in one part of the neighborhood in particular so i got to know people over a long period of time
0: so were you able to sort of gather uh, documents and and as to sort of complement the interviews on oral history with um there's obviously a huge amount of photographs and i want to ask a little bit about that um in a minute but um with other kinds of materials that people had gathered themselves over the years.
1: Yeah, uh, Jacob, this is one of the, the most pleasant surprises of the research, which was uh, that the, you know, we, we tend to um, look sideways on paper archives in general. And uh, we think that paper archives only tell very partial stories, which, of course, they do. Uh, When we think of paper archives, we're usually thinking of official government archives, uh, either in Maputo's um, historical archive or, let's say, in Lisbon's historical archive. Uh, And I did work in those archives, but I I hadn't realized in advance before I started the project just how much people kept... uh, Paper materials on their own, um, and they kept uh, them uh, along with photographs in brown envelopes, uh, and those brown envelopes are are stored in trunks or suitcases um, to protect them from uh, from moisture. And so, uh, people were very uh, happy to share with me uh, photographs of of their homes, of their lives, um, going back to uh, the 50s, 40s and 50s. And um, a lot of these photographs are wedding photographs because oftentimes that's the only photograph people uh, might have had of themselves and their family or uh, their IDs, which had photographs in them. Uh, But other families uh, may have been Uh, were in possession of a camera, very few of them, and that represented uh, a a great window into the past because these are not neighborhoods that appear in uh, archives, official archives in, um, in Maputo or Lisbon, either in photographic form or really otherwise.
0: So, so throughout, you're sort of focusing on the kind of ordinary practices of home building. Um, and there's an overarching argument in the book about what this tells us about the continuities and differences that we can see between the colonial and post-colonial periods and, and how this attention to this kind of everyday housing practice um, shapes our understanding of the process of decolonization. So can you say a bit about the kind of overall argument that you draw through the, through attention to these materials?
1: Um, I would say that there's, uh, it, there's multiple arguments here, um, in, uh, that, that are clearly, that, that are obviously related to each other. Uh, the, an overarching argument would be that there is a politics to house construction that doesn't call itself politics, uh, that it, Overlays with this uh, with notions of what it is to decolonize, uh, and that to tell the story of decolonization in Maputo is not just to talk about what a new government wanted to do. It's not to talk about the struggles, the armed struggle for independence before uh, nineteen seventy five. Uh, which was very limited in these neighborhoods. Uh, it's to talk about another kind of decolonization, other kinds of decolonization uh, involving people breaking down the structures of inequality while building their homes. People are not, people in the suburbios were not freedom fighters, at least for the most part. Police, secret police of the port, the Portuguese secret police was very adept at suppressing dissent. There was no parties contesting elections. There was no because there were no meaningful elections, uh, and so you have a politics that is submerged. If you only look at newspapers. But that becomes apparent when you talk to people about building homes in places where their lives were uh, made to be precarious. That is a political act. When you do things that are contrary to expectation than what you are supposed to do, when uh, you build a concrete home, for instance, in a place where building in concrete is prohibited. Now, there's a break in the story, and that's between chapters three and four, and that's the break at independence. And the last two chapters deal with the first decade or so after independence. And here you have a kind of politics that is perhaps more like what we think of when we think of politics, which is to say people are very consciously trying to bring the state into their lives. They are, uh, when they act and do things on the ground, they are often doing so in the name of the new government, the new state, uh, even though they may not have been instructed to do so. And so, the projects that I discuss in those latter uh, uh, two chapters and the the, the episodes that I, I talk about are really about people not just relating themselves to this new state, but in doing that, kind of bringing it into being. We don't like to talk about starting from scratch. As historians, we, we would say that that's never really true. But the new bureaucratic apparatus, the new state, the new relationships of rights and responsibilities was, if not being made from scratch, uh, being uh, made very nearly from scratch.
0: There's another really interesting tension that you point out that runs through the book about how you navigate the politics of representation of around these this kind of discourse, this pathologizing discourse around African cities that are so often defined only in terms of crisis or absence. Um, so at the same time, you're trying to avoid that, but also recognize the kind of the struggles and the the difficulties that house builders had to overcome. So can you say a little bit about how you've, how you've tried to manage and hold that tension um, throughout your work here?
1: Yeah. uh, Jacob, you're familiar and a lot of our listeners are familiar with the the kind of romanticizing the slum um, type of, of literature that's out there or in media accounts, especially of, People of of of, of this of documenting people's kind of beautiful struggles of improvisation through uh, very trying circumstances and hope in the darkness uh, and uh, creativity and that's all uh, you know. It's not that that isn't something we should uh, ignore. That that isn't something we should ignore. Certainly, there are inspirational stories of people in um, in uh, these neighborhoods, and at the other side of it, there is the type of literature that is simply about how awful it is to live in uh, places that are just dismissed as slums. Now, I don't, I. I I don't want to say that I'm arguing against those particular points. Uh, uh, I guess approaches, uh, and the, w- the reason I say I'm not arguing is it, I just take it as a, a, a basic premise of the project that that's not very useful in either way. That they're they're both very limiting ways of seeing the world. Uh, they um, are they they don't really fit people's own. Exp- everyday experiences of being in these neighborhoods, of doing something spectacular or of living in misery. Um and uh I, I don't want to say everyday life is more boring than that, because I, I don't think that's the case. I just think it's more, it's clearly more complex. And so I try to avoid either whole by focusing on other types of stories. And so uh every episode uh that i i focus on uh ha- follows a different arc it follows a different narrative arc it, they're not stories of failure and success they're not stories of um hope triumphant uh not that those stories aren't there they're just not the stories that i i i was attracted to i was st- more attracted to stories of people searching for answers, uh, their attempts, their dead ends, uh, their uh, not so much scraping by and not so much thriving, but the effort to build uh, not just a house but a life and the risks inherent in that, those are compelling stories Precisely because we haven't necessarily heard them before.
0: And I think, yeah, the way that you use the built environment to kind of materialize those aspirations really works um, towards that end of just sort of seeing the process of um, the accrual of built materials over time um, really, links, uh, really illustrates that really well. So maybe we can go go back to the first um start with the first chapter and where you open with a comparison between the nature of racial, racial segregation under apartheid in South Africa and under Portuguese colonialism where there's this kind of official ideology of color blindness um but nonetheless had um and despite that, a, a highly segregated urban order emerged nonetheless. So can you say a little bit about how these ideas about evolution, assimilation, and colorblindness shaped the urban form uh, in colonial Maputo?
1: Yeah, this is, um, I, you know, my my starting point 20 years ago was, was South Africa. And, and I think a lot of people who um, are new to uh, African history, they, uh, and when they start learning about colonialism and settler colonial cities, it's it's natural to want to focus on uh, the systems, uh, the structures that uh, instantiated segregation, that made segregation, urban segregation. Um, once you mess around in the material, you start to see the blurry lines. This is true even in the kind of, um, you know, archetypal uh, racist uh, settler colonial environment, which is South Africa uh, and South African apartheid and the separating out the forced removal of Africans and forcing them to live in um, locations at some distance from where white people lived and forcing them to carry passes. Um, This is a a story we know uh, it's tempting to look at Maputo and to look at cities like Maputo and see the same thing. And of course, you do see very similar things. The thing is, you see them, you see segregation happening in uh, Maputo, which was then called Lorenzo Marx, without the force and power of law to make it happen. This is why. This makes Lorenzo Marx a much more, I would say, interesting case study. Because you can't just look at a law, not that you ever can, to, to see what reality looked like. How is it that Lorenzo Marx became a thoroughly segregated city despite the fact that the Portuguese claimed to be colorblind? despite the fact that there were no laws that said Africans had to live here and not there? How is it that you had a city center that was predominantly white during the colonial era and three-quarters of the city, that is to say the suburbials, being predominantly African? How did that happen without the law guiding where people could and could not live? It happened because of all these other forms of oppression, um, including a system of forced labor that kept African wages very, very low. Uh, If you have a system like that in place, most Africans simply could not afford to live in the places that uh, Europeans did. Uh, and the few that could, the few who managed to achieve uh, Portuguese citizenship were, were pretty much kept out of the city of cement, it was called, by uh, just landlords refusing to rent to them. Uh, one doesn't want to say this was extra-legal segregation, because it was a legal apparatus that subjected most of the Mozambican population to forced labor. But in terms of actually determining where they could and could not live, uh, that apparatus wasn't there. Um, either you could not rent in the city of cement, or and you could not build a house there because you could not afford to build in permanent materials, which uh, uh, at, at some point became required for li- uh, building in the city of cement. Uh, The result of this difference with other settler uh, colonial regimes is that unlike uh, South Africa, for instance, uh, it meant that there was just a very thin line separating the city of cement, which is to say the predominantly European quarters, and the suburbios. It's just a single road, single curving road, and it's porous. Um, there were Europeans living in suburbios, several thousand at some point. Uh, there were people of mixed race, mestizos living in one neighborhood in the city of cement. Um, and so you had thoroughgoing segregation, but it was not complete. And it's in that incompleteness that you get, frankly, some very rich Stories of people moving back and forth. I think it's significant that the the literature of uh, uh, at least the print literature of um, Maputo, Lorenzo Marx, uh, the poetry, um, a lot of the journalism, a lot of the chronicles they call them of city life uh, are were written between the 40s and um, uh, 70s by people who uh, straddled that very thin line, people who moved back and forth. Uh, And that's not just uh, African writers, Mestisa
0: writers, uh,
1: that is also European writers.
0: The the main contrast here at this point bet- was between the city of cement and the what what was called the city of reeds, if if that's right. Um, and you really go into a lot of detail about the kind of materiality of reed construction. So can you say a little about what these kind of uh, what what houses looked like during this time, and what kind of meanings people aspired to them, and and how the the materiality of reeds shaped things like ideas of privacy um, and domesticity?
1: Sure well the city of cement was called the city of cement not officially but unofficially because it was predominantly made you know from concrete blocks poured in place concrete uh steel reinforced concrete construction paved roads hard surfaces permanent materials the suburbios however uh also went by the name Canisu and canisu in Portuguese means reed because most people built their homes in reeds, uh, and just as they did in, in the countryside, uh, and they fenced their yards in reeds. The thing is, reeds when in the countryside is nothing to be ashamed of. That's uh, They're freely available um, by riversides, waterways. And um, it doesn't cost anything to get them or to replace them uh, when they rot, which they do in relatively short order, maybe a year or two or three. In the city, however, the same materials to build what might look like the same house is a very different house. And that's because those reeds don't grow in the city. You have to buy those reeds at a market. You have to buy all the materials to build your house, including the wood strips used to secure the reeds to build your house. And pretty much everybody had as a roof, uh, a metal panel, corrugated metal panel. In Portuguese, they call it a chapa. And because it was a rectangular-shaped panel, you had rectangular-shaped roofs for these reed homes. Why didn't people like living in reed homes? Why, despite the fact that today people might look fondly, especially architects, architecture students look back fondly on what had been the predominant building style of building in reeds, Seeming, it seems like a resourceful building material, but when you actually talk to residents who still live in, in Reed houses, which is very few, or who used to live in Reed houses, they talk about the various miseries associated with it. Uh, because it rotted relatively quickly in Maputo, in Lawrence, the, the weather of the, the region, uh, you had to replace it frequently, and that was costly um because houses were much closer together than they were in the countryside you didn't have much privacy because you can sort of hear what's going on uh next door because people all used kerosene lamps to light their homes and because they cooked on open coals having all those reeds in very close proximity was an extreme fire hazard and it uh the Many houses, uh, when there was a fire, many houses might be burnt to the ground in in the process. And so reeds didn't just symbolize or embody living in the suburbios. It was uh, both the the substance and symbol of poverty and of misery. And no one was particularly proud of their uh, reed house. Uh, that isn't to say that there weren't some fine examples of reed house construction. There certainly were. And in the 60s and 70s, people were painting the door frames of, uh, and window frames of their uh, reed houses in beautiful patterns. Um, but people always aspired to build something more permanent, more prote- that would protect them more against the elements. And those who had greater means did build houses with, uh, with materials that were, I guess, more protective against the, the climate. And that was, pe- that, that those were the houses of wood and zinc. And these are uh, essentially wood-framed houses, paneled entirely in those uh, metal panels. Um, in Portuguese, they just call them madeira zinco, wood and zinc houses and so those with greater means built in wooden zinc houses uh those of a lot of means a lot more than others would build much bigger houses of wooden zinc uh they call them chalets uh and these are these are essentially the palaces of the the of the suburbios um problem with that material is it resulted in houses would be like ovens during the day sun was out And at night, they'd be very cold. They might block against the wind, but not not against the chill. And so there was an aspiration for more permanent materials. uh, And beginning in the 1960s, people began to build in concrete blocks because they had more money in their pockets and they could afford it. But the conflict arose because building in permanent materials was by law prohibited in the suburbios. And why was that? Because um, the uh, authorities thought of these neighborhoods, the three quarters of the city, as temporary. Places that there would be future development along proper planned lines. And for that vision, for them to maintain that vision, meant that people couldn't build concrete buildings that would be hard to bulldoze. And so people were kept in permanent suspense for some future date that never arrived when the municipality would upgrade the landscape um, uh, and build what it thought of as a modern, properly modern city uh, and to enforce to preserve that image, uh, they would uh, threaten to demolish anyone who built a house in concrete. Um, the book is called Age of Concrete, both because of that, that episode of people um, risking a great deal to defy the law and build, build in concrete uh, in the last decade or so before independence, but also because of what building in concrete embodied for them. Uh, Aspiration in the general sense, sure, it's a sort of abstraction, but the associations with concrete are with permanence, with uh, moving forward, with uh, a word that we toss around a lot, but it it simply applies, which is uh, what it means to be modern. And people looked across that boundary between city and suburbia and they thought, why do they get to build in concrete and not ourselves? Are we not part of the city as well?
0: So you write that that during this kind of last decade of colonial rule at a time when other African countries were um, experiencing or were, were... Becoming independent, we're, we're gaining independence and sort of developing a new urban politics around that. Um, Muputu remained a Portuguese colony um, and one, as you said, without a very explicit anti colonial political presence in these kind of neighborhoods. Living conditions and municipal services became the place where critiques of the racial colonial state were being articulated in somewhat indirect ways. So what kind of demands were people making and and what effect did they have on the development of the built environment in the suburbios? Sure.
1: First I want to establish what the stakes were, what this what the the kind of security environment was in the yep. 1960s. In the early 1960s. Portugal is trying to push back the forces of decolonization. They are, uh, they are intent to stay in Africa. Uh, they have five colonies and there are, uh, insurgencies emerging in three of the major ones, uh, including Mozambique, Fulimo, which is the, uh, armed guerrilla movement forms in Tanzania uh, in exile, and they launched their war for independence in 1964. Uh, Portugal, meanwhile, while it now has to fight these, this war also has to fight a war for hearts and minds, and they are intent on developing these cities, uh, with industry, cities of Mozambique and Angola, um, with industry, uh, uh, factories uh, encouraging more uh, immigration from Portugal. Uh, they are not just trying to build up cities to show that they intend to stay uh, and populating them with with Portuguese, but they are also trying to um, create a stratum of Mozambicans who benefit, a larger stratum of Mozambicans who benefit from uh, the Portuguese presence. Uh, And indeed in Lorenzo Marx, many thousands of people uh, get jobs in factories, which there were not before um, at retail uh, at all, all the new stores that uh, sprout up in Lorenzo Marx to serve mostly the um, European population, Uh, the burgeoning tourist industry of Lorenzo Marx, uh, Uh, There's a lot of service workers, uh, new jobs, and there's over um, 10,000 African men working in the construction industry, and there's more uh, buildings being built um, in Lorenzo Marx in the 1960s than there had been in the entire history of the city to that point. Uh, And so you have, um, uh, on the one hand, uh, what seem to be more opportunities, and there are more opportunities for for the Afri- uh, for African residents of uh, of Lorenzo Mark and for Lorenzo Marx and for many uh, people in southern Mozambique who make their way to Lorenzo Marx. Uh, at the other side of it, though, because of the war um, and not just because of the war, uh, the Portuguese regime uh, unleashes its secret police uh, on, uh, on Mozambique. Uh, they had already had a, an office of the secret police in, in Lorenzo Marx, but in the 1960s, uh, that office went uh, into uh, essentially overdrive uh, and they extended their network of informants uh, throughout the city in workplaces, in the suburbios, in the cantinas, uh, people suspected each other of informing on them. Uh, if you were a suspect, you'd be brought in for questioning, perhaps tortured, uh, and many were imprisoned. Um, this is why the armed guerrilla movement did not make much headway in uh, Lorenzo Marx. Many people who headed for Limo had lived in Lorenzo Marx and the experience uh, shaped their understanding of what Portuguese colonialism was was. Um, but, uh, in 1964 with the outbreak of war, the secret police successfully rolled up, uh, for Lima's, uh, network in the suburbios, uh, and really clamped down on the media, which is not to say that the media was entirely muzzled. Uh, but it, it was mostly muzzled and even to talk about racism, to acknowledge racism was a problem. To acknowledge the suburbios' existence was a problem. Uh, there was this one newspaper that I wrote, I write about uh, in, in, in one of the chapters, uh, a newspaper called A Tribuna, uh, the Tribune. Uh, it didn't last very long at least not in its activist phase, but it, it took advantage of a little bit of a relaxation in, in, the, in censorship in 1963 to publish a series of articles called The City of Reeds. And this was a radical intervention. One, because it called these neighborhoods, suburban neighborhoods, The City of Reeds. Uh, and that was a deliberate provocation to be a, to show that it was kind of, they were, these neighborhoods were the wretched mirror image of this place commonly called the city of cement and the newspaper would publish testimonials of residents of the suburbs talking about the conditions in which they lived now this was still a really restrained debate you did not see many photos of the suburbios in the newspaper; those were still censored. Uh, you still did not see you still did not see any read about any discussion of race. That was not in the newspaper. It was all to be read between the lines, uh, and the the reporters, the journalists, the editors at Tribuna became very adept at kind of sneaking in wry commentary in their photo captions for instance um but wryness was essentially as far as it could go the series of articles and editorials who did they target they did not target racism they did not target uh the colonial economic system uh rather they targeted the municipality a very easy target and said that the Municipality had not done enough to improve housing conditions. It was almost like uh, a technical failure more than uh, a political or economic one. And the newspaper was uh, defanged uh, after about nine months of publishing these articles. Nonetheless, others picked up where the newspaper had left off. A group of African nurses at the Central Hospital organized a working group to discuss improving housing conditions in the suburbios. They contracted uh an architect to come up with uh an idea for housing still within the kind of um, limitations imposed by uh the security apparatus people apparatus people were very scared to you know, outright say that this was a racist system based on uh, 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 racialized oppression. And um, there was a third episode I discuss involving a neighborhood called the Bayro Indigena. And what was the Bayro Indigena? It was a housing project built by the local administration in the uh, 40s, specifically for uh, people who were identified as natives, indigenous. And this neighborhood, which was supposed to represent the best intentions of the Portuguese uh, administration, uh, had been built uh, very cheaply on marshlands, uh, which is why not many people had lived there before. And so the only uh, public housing project of any significance built before the 1960s was this neighborhood. Several hundred people live there, Uh, people who uh, were very angry by the conditions in which they were compelled to live because every year there was severe flooding in the Bajero Indígena. The administration did very little to, to... maintain the place uh, in the 1960s in 60 1964 the administration sent uh, a team of sociologists social workers sorry to the neighborhood and they sent them there because the government intended to build more housing and it wanted to see all that had gone right in this neighborhood that had been built in the 1940s and which they were apparently proud of. So they sent the social workers to, uh, meet with residents of the biro Indigena and they had a big group meeting. And at this group meeting, a meeting at which the social workers are trying to find out all that went right with the biro Indigena so they can use that to build new housing projects. Uh, the people who attended that meeting essentially shouted down the social workers. They were so angry about the conditions in which they were living. The social workers in their report said that they were surprised by the harsh reaction and they chalked it up to the fact that the residents had never been asked their opinion about anything relative to the government. So what we're talking about is a very small window into a much wider universe of grievance, uh, grievance that had no outlet otherwise in this uh, context. And what... I I think it's very significant that it was around the question of housing and the conditions of the suburbios. Why? Because housing buildings, these neighborhoods, are visible in a way that other sources of grievance are not. You can't avoid these neighborhoods when you fly into the airport. When you drive to the airport or when you drive to South Africa, as many well, essentially all European Europeans living in Aronsomarics, and certainly the administrators would do at one point or another, you could not avoid the fact that these neighborhoods were in low-lying areas, frequently flooded, and people were living in terrible circumstances. Housing became a flashpoint, perhaps the only flashpoint, the only means of... of uh, Of bringing uh, grievances into public debate. And I argue in the book that the reason for this is not because housing was the only issue people cared about, but because it was easy enough for Portuguese administrators to write it off as a technical problem, a technical problem in which the culprits were local administrators. Lisbon where you, had, uh, you now had a modernizing, uh, self-described, progressive dictatorial regime, uh, it was easy for them to open up local officials in, uh to expose local officials in Lorenzo Marx to critique. So uh, what I argue in the book is that these are the reasons why housing and shape and 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 the shape of the suburbias uh, was the politics of Lorenzo Marx. Um, if we're talking about the politics of decolonization,
0: one of the the other interesting aspects of this that you mention um, in chapter three is the way that racial anxieties around the living standards of poor white families shaped. Um, the state's attitudes towards the built environment. And this really reminded me of work by Ann Stoller on in Indonesia and Kelly Hernandez on the early history of Los Angeles about the way that um, poor white families living standards um, become such a source of, of anxiety. So can you say a little bit about why that was particularly problematic for the colonial government and, and what knock on effect that anxiety had on the governance of the African population? Of the city?
1: Sh- sure. Um, the, I, I'm unfamiliar with Kelly Hernandez's work, although now I'm sure to to check it out. Uh, the, the problem is, it, the issue is similar to what it is in many settler colonial societies, which is the so-called poor white problem. Uh, the many Europeans, and not just those in administrative positions, had a great deal of anxiety about the position of whites versus the position of blacks. Uh, There's been, you know, you can look at lots of different cities uh, historically uh, in colonial contexts in which uh, wealthier or better off whites seek to rescue poorer whites from comparison with Africans because it makes all whites look bad if you have poor and illiterate uh, Portuguese living uh in the suburbios, and there were many. This uh impacted the the how uh, the politics of uh the policies of housing uh firstly the the government uh sought to rehouse poor Portuguese elsewhere uh and built uh, housing for them in Matola, which is uh, a satellite community of Maputo about six, six miles away. Um, and, but there was another episode in the 1960s, uh, that, um, that I think, uh, really revealed, um, just how, uh, how much these anxieties drove, um, uh, local politics, uh, which was the case of, The biro-clandestino, which which literally, which in translation means the clandestine neighborhood. Um, What was clandestine about it? Well, uh, a private developer who had land near the airport uh, laid out a bunch of lots and sold them for people to build their own houses on them. At the time, it was becoming very expensive to live in the city of cement because of the influx of Portuguese settlers because of the development. And there were many Portuguese who could not afford to live there. And so they took the opportunity to purchase, uh, properties, uh, out by the airport. And, uh, these were properties that didn't have roads, uh, connecting them to the main grid. They didn't have running water uh, and they didn't have electricity and the municipality uh, freaked out. Uh, The municipality saw these houses going up. These houses were not according to code. They were off the grid. And while this was never said, uh, implicit was what I think was a panic because this neighborhood, the Bairro Clandestino, was, first of all, a diverse neighborhood. It wasn't just white Portuguese buying these lots. There were also many uh, people of South Asian backgrounds. Uh, there were um, many people of mixed racial heritage, mestizos. Uh, and there was a handful of black Mozambicans who also lived there, including very prominent cultural figures like the painter Malangatana. Uh, the sculptor Albertishano, um and um the playwright Lundun Schlongo, who I I interviewed uh, about this. And moreover, this neighborhood blended seamlessly into the other parts of the suburbios. So I argue that the 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 order to demolish these hundreds of houses came from Uh, A panic over the proximity, this new proximity of uh, black and white. The boundary that had at least symbolically divided people had been blurred. You had lots of Portuguese living in substandard housing. And you had many uh, uh, Africans who were building in concrete, also not according to code. But in housing that looked very similar to housing that was in the Biro clandestino, so that these these sort of long-standing notions that there was a civilized uh, European city that was the city of cement, and a fundamentally uh, a fundamental other place called the suburbios where Africans lived, and that was fundamentally rural in character and ruled by. Uh, traditional leaders officially just like they were in the countryside well that boundary had had just broken down it was a different story than when you had uh, poor Portuguese living in say wood and, and zinc houses uh, that was not as threatening as this was because in this case you had an upwardly mobile group Of uh, black Mozambicans The end result was that This neighborhood was saved from demolition uh, But it set off uh, A bureaucratic um, I, I guess a bureaucratic witch hunt For concrete structures Elsewhere in the suburbios Being built by black Mozambicans
0: Maybe we can uh, jump ahead a little bit to the era of, of decolonization and talk a bit about some of the key aspects of frelimo's urban policies and, and how those fit into their broader kind of revolutionary agenda. So wh- what were some of the core changes that uh, Maputo experienced around independence and and how did cities figure into frelimo's overall politics? Um, I, you mentioned they had the kind of a similar anti-urban ideology that a lot of other nationalist movements had during this time period
1: so first of all fulemo described itself as a revolutionary socialist movement it was uh not keen on the kind of gradualist approach it saw in other uh independent african countries af- uh, after independence uh, which it regarded as soft. Um, it it was all in when it came to the notion of a scientific socialism formulas that were would um, transform uh, Mozambique and uh, relations of power and um, in, in short, this wasn't just independence, this was a revolution, supposed to be a revolution in its in its sort of truest form that said we're talking about a lot of contradictory strains within this uh regime uh within filimo there were people who described themselves as more pragmatic uh there were people who described themselves as as uh or thought of themselves as uh idealistic uh Radicals, unwilling to compromise. Uh, Of course, somebody outside the regime would think of them all as pretty uh, unpragmatic. But in any case, within the regime, there were people of different minds of how to approach um, the the, the great problem of underdevelopment in in Mozambique. Mozambique was 90% rural. People who were in regime in the regime were largely people who had maybe grown up in rural contexts, but had spent a lot of time in cities uh, such as in the suburbios of Lorenzo Marks. They had a very contradictory attitude uh, towards cities. Uh, They thought of authentic mozambican as residing in rural areas. They thought of cities as artificial colonial creations. They thought of them with many good reasons as places where their revolution was threatened by people who were not keen on uh, the revolution. Uh, they, um, they tended to portray, however, pretty much anyone who was not on board uh, or not outwardly enthusiastic as uh, a counter-revolutionary. Um so uh the other side of that equation is they also thought of themselves as modernizers uh who uh were going to um remedy rural backward thinking that was stuck in all kinds of mysticism this is this is the the thinking of of Frilimo. and so uh on the one hand they did see cities as kind of uh, uh, places where modernization was going to happen uh, and also eventually countrysides were going to be places where modernization, according to a certain idea of what modernization was, was going to happen. But the other side of it was that the that in 1975, the people who lived in cities were part of the problem. Uh, that's one side of the equation the other side of it is that with ninety percent of the country being rural Frelimo understandably directed their efforts their energies uh, towards what they were going to do in the countryside how they were going to change it they did not at uh, see cities as a place where radical transformation was going to happen in the near term so the first policies in cities were uh really about rooting out people who were considered undesirable it wasn't about improving suburban conditions something that they initially felt was beyond them uh it was about uh taking people who had supposedly been brainwashed by colonialism rounding up prostitutes or sex workers people who were or people who were just identified as sex workers Rounding up uh, people identified as vagrants, that is to say, people not employed in what they thought of as productive activities, and putting them in reeducation camps and my My colleague Benedito machava has has uh, written about that. Um, so when it came to the suburbios, there was very little that Filimo felt that it could do for the moment um which is not to say it didn't do anything. There was a latrine building program that got off to a start pretty early on. Uh, uh, Soon there were cooperatives formed in the outer edges of the city called Green Zones on former Portuguese uh, 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 farms that had been abandoned. Uh, And early on there was something else that happened but it wasn't supposed to be an improvement. It was supposed to be an emergency measure, and it was this. It was because of the flooding in the first year of independence, another round of flooding. I mean, it happened every year, but sometimes it was worse than others. In this case, it was particularly bad, and a lot of people living in the suburbios needed housing. At the same time, a lot of people had abandoned the city of Cement, eventually 90% of the Portuguese population of Mozambique would leave. Many of them had already left by early 1976. And when Frelimo, needing to house all these folks who'd been washed out of their homes, saw an opportunity, they were going to uh, uh, appropriate abandoned housing in cities of cement to house... Uh, the victims of flooding. But within just three days about that policy uh, became something very, very different. Here we are. It's about seven months after independence. It's February of 1976. And the government is about to appropriate units of housing, abandoned housing, to house just those people who have been flooded. But once that idea gets batted around, the highest levels of, for Limo, the more ideologically charged among them, win a very brief debate, and say rent. Who they say rent is exploitation of man by man. All rental properties in cities of cement should be appropriated. Now, who does this hurt in cities of cement? It hurts uh, mostly a a lot of kind of modest landlords who decide to stay. People who might only have six units in a small building. Um, This is to say among people who decided to stay. It hurts people who were collecting rents who had already left the country, and so they were collecting rent from abroad. and Flemo characterized them as as counter-revolutionaries who were using that money to then fund uh, attacks on Mozambique or potential attacks on Mozambique. So February 3rd, 1976, the president of Mozambique uh, has a speech in which he he gives a speech. uh, He renames, this is when he renames the... They renamed the city uh, Maputo. And Maputo, he says, uh, will now have a Mozambican face because Frelimo is now nationalizing the city of cement and other cities of cement in the country. And he describes how all these buildings were built by the sweat of Mozambican labor and financed by the exploitation of Mozambican labor. But now they belong to the people. The people will be able to live there. There will no longer be apartheid in Mozambique. Now, he qualifies his statement and says, not everyone will be able to live there, really just the people who could afford to pay the rent because it can't be free, and it can't be free because we have to maintain these buildings. So there's still going to be, he acknowledges, a kind of class segregation. This is the more pragmatic side, I guess, showing through, what some would call pragmatic. Uh, and the, here's where things get really interesting because the following day, and I, I got this story from the former minister of, of housing and public works. The following day, thousands and thousands of people show up at the ministry ready to register their houses, their units with the government so that they no longer pay rent to a landlord, they pay it to the government. Just in accordance with uh, the president's speech. The thing is, and this is what the minister told me, there shouldn't have been that many people because there were not that many people living in the city of Cement at the time. Uh, What he discovered when he went in the line was that many of the people coming to register their properties were people who lived in the suburbios because the suburbios themselves had many rental properties. Those properties were very different than the houses in the city of cement. The rental properties in the suburbios were frequently uh, reed houses, maybe a single reed house built on a property by a... by someone who was seeking to have a little extra income in the family. There were many women in the suburbios who did not earn a wage, uh, but who earned money selling fruit or vegetables, and who took that money and invested it in building a uh, reed house, which they can rent out. We're not talking about an apartment building. There were some parts of the suburbios where half the properties were Rental housing uh some of that housing was this incredibly exploitive form of housing the compounds where people lived in these uh these wooden zinc uh one room units uh, and were considered kind of the slums of the suburbios, others living in these these reed houses uh and activists in the neighborhood, activists who were called grupos dinamizadores, dynamizing groups, GDs. GDs were uh, sort of governing authorities in these neighborhoods, ad hoc governing authorities who took their orders from Frelimo, who enacted Frelimo policy on the ground. Uh, and in this case, some GDs had interpreted the president's order, his speech, to mean that all the suburban properties were supposed to be nationalized as well. If you go to the speech itself, suburbios are never mentioned. There's never a discussion of how bad the circumstances are in the suburbios and their, how bad the rental properties are in the suburbios and that they should be nationalized and improved. The entire speech is around predios, which means buildings in the city of cement. And that's because that was Frelimo's intention, was to nationalize just rental units in the city of Cement. But some in these neighborhoods, the suburban neighborhoods, interpret it in a more expansive way. The minister explained it to me. He said these were people who were trying to bring the government into their lives, to recognize the conditions in which they lived, so that they can then improve them. This is decades have built up frustration that the government had neglected these neighborhoods. The act of spontaneous nationalization happening in the suburbios, he said, was people essentially reaching out for the state. So Filimo agreed to go along. Now, none of this is in the newspapers. It won't say that Frilimo changed its mind, that the policy had actually changed incrementally and dramatically over three days. Uh, but that—that that is what's hap- that is what happened, and I think you would see very different speech if suburbios had been intended to be nationalized initially, and it had been contemplated. And the reason they weren't nas- initially uh, supposed to be nationalized is because uh, it was acknowledged that many of the people who owned rental properties were pretty poor themselves, and that they needed these meager. The, the, the income that came in from renting out a reed house, say, to, to just to get by. And these were people, moreover, who had stayed in Mozambique and were Mozambican. Uh, but frelimo decided that they they should go along with this more expansive policy. And so it was. Uh, thousands of people in the suburbios were dispossessed. Not necessarily because of some deliberate revolutionary agenda. Uh, But because people in these neighborhoods, not all of them, but some of them, uh, were defining for themselves what the new state should be and what it should do.
0: I think, and that takes us in quite um, nicely to an equally contradictory project, um, or contradictory in the minds of the Frelimo, was this upgrading project that took place in the late 1970s that was driven by... The relationship between local residents and these international planners who came in. So, can you say a bit about this upgrade scheme? What distinguished it from other forms of um, dealing with uh, slum communities at that time, and and why it was so driven by popular participation?
1: What I'm about to talk about may seem quite divorced from other parts of the story we've talked about for the last hour, and that's because. These are all episodes. The book is organized around episodes that don't necessarily have a single uh, through line other than these are stories of people building uh, houses, people shaping their spaces uh, in ways that bring uh, the state into their lives. Um, Now, this particular case Uh, I thought was enlightening for a number of reasons. One, it was the first quote-unquote slum upgrading project in Mozambique after independence. Slum upgrading throughout the world had meant until the 1970s uh, knocking slums down or places identified in slums. In fact, the word slum was invoked Uh, to describe places as this kind of prelude to uh, bulldozing a neighborhood because the problem was said to be uh, the buildings and not, say, the economy in which people, uh, were uh, an unequal economy. Uh, And so what you had was the World Bank put up some money, contracted, paid for uh, an architect, a Swedish architect to come to Mozambique, to what was then a very bare-bones housing and planning department. Uh, There was not much technical expertise of that kind in Mozambique. Most architects had left the country at that time. Um, And this Swedish architect had an idea. And the idea was, given that there were so few resources available, even with the help of uh, the World Bank, Uh, And given this ugly past of displacements and removing people, not just in Mozambique, but elsewhere, throughout the world, really, that he wanted to try something more modest. And that something more modest was to simply put roads of access through uh, suburban space. Now, these are neighborhoods that didn't have, uh, they had essentially paths Uh, For the most part, maybe there was uh, one road that went through that was a relatively narrow road that one or two cars might be able to pass next to each other. Uh, One car, essentially one lane or two lanes, but dirt in any case, uh, would not allowing access to ambulances or fire trucks into the middle of neighborhoods. And so he got the green light for this. And what it was going to involve was talking to the local Grupo Dinamizador, the dynamizing group, that local ground-level authority, and saying, what do you think about this idea of simply opening up some paths of access? And the the GD said, yes, great idea. They had a big meeting of all the people in the neighborhood, and they were very excited about it. Uh, a pilot area was chosen. And this is where a pretty massive uh, collaborative effort began because lots of people had to be involved in the effort, first of all, to draw up where the paths of access were supposed to go, uh, and then for people to decide uh, how they were going to move their houses out of the way. Now, these are Reed houses, So it's easier to dismantle them and put them back together than it would be if they were concrete. Um, So at these big meetings, uh, people agreed to the idea of putting these roads of access. And part of the reason they want, much of the reason they want these paths of access is because they were told that putting the paths of access through is prelude to more infrastructural improvement which is to say you may want water, you may want electricity, you may want sewage. The thing that's going to enable that is putting these paths of access through. And when resources are available, having these paths of access will make it possible to do these other infrastructural changes. But that this would be incremental change, first you had to put these paths of access through. So people got to work, and one of the first things that happened was that the architects, uh, a Canadian architect named Barry Pinsky and the Swedish architect named Ingmar Seyfors, uh, they came back with a plan which would have involved very minimal interventions in this neighborhood. They were well-meaning. They thought that because of the history of displacements in late colonial Lorenzo Marx, in which you know, large numbers of people were moved to make way for infrastructural projects that benefit the city of cement, uh, that they should do as little damage as possible. And so they drew up these kind of twisting roads of access and the neighborhood came back and they said, no way. And the group, the GD said, this is not a properly modern plan properly modern plan has a rectilinear grid. We want a grid and we'll move more houses out of the way if that's what it takes. And so the architects went ahead and made a plan that involved a grid. And it was from that point forward, the drawing of these lines and connecting this neighborhood with the urban grid of Maputo that really energized the people in this neighborhood. Because once they got that, once they had this connection, it awoke other desires, which is not to say they did not want water before, which is not to say they did not want electricity before, but it never rose to the level of a demand. Now you had a kind of pathway for the demand. You had the literal pathway, these new roads of access. But people remembered the promise that once you had the Roads of access, then you could have the water. And they demanded water. The architects didn't know what to do because it wasn't up to them to be able to provide water. The municipality, uh, which was operating at kind of a bare bones at this moment, um, finally agreed uh, to provide water to the center of these newly made blocks, although not to each house. Um, and residents ran to their (laughs) shovels to begin digging the trenches for the water pipes. They were so excited by by the prospect. Now, because this couldn't be repeated, this project, it's called the Mashaken Project, because it couldn't be repeated to the entire city, it became a problem. Why was it a problem? Why couldn't they just do this everywhere? Because... It depended on the World Bank funding it. But it also depended on the okay from the higher-ups at Limo. And there was not a lot of enthusiasm for this particular upgrade project. And there wasn't a lot of enthusiasm for it. Although there were good words said about it, there was not a lot of enthusiasm for uh, having it repeated throughout the city because what it did was it acknowledged the permanence of these suburban neighborhoods of substandard, what was understood as substandard housing. Whereas in the minds of many within the regime to be properly modern meant to have the kind of big uh, concrete um, housing slabs that you saw, for instance, in Eastern Europe. That's what a socialist country provided its citizens. Uh, and so um, the project kind of died there it served 50,000 people and even to this day that neighborhood Mashaken and the one adjoining it Palanakanisu, uh are marked by these um grids unlike the rest of suburban space and i think the the, the reason i uh was so intrigued by both of these episodes the the episodes of the spontaneous nationalization of the suburbios 76 and of the Masha Ken project in which ran from 77 to 70, roughly 79 is that these are moments, not when the government is telling people what to do, although government was telling people what to do in lots of other ways, but people were trying to bring the government, the state into its, into their lives. In ways that the state hadn't contemplated the state did not have the capacity for the state hadn't even thought of it as their as their job. Here were people making other decisions about what the state's job was, and they were doing it through the medium of housing and urbanism.
0: I think that's a really great place to wrap up, so I just want to thank you for um, for taking the time to talk I think um this this is a really fascinating story that will be of huge interest to not just african anthropologist africanist anthropologists and anthropologists of the built environment but is really rich for understanding the anthropology of the state um the history of infrastructure projects and and the politics of development and the cold war more broadly um so we i know we've taken up a lot of your time but before we go i just wanted to ask um what you're working on at the moment and what we can look forward to next from you
1: well, those, uh, those later episodes I talked about are really about what happens just after independence. And that's what my next project's going to be. Not housing, but about these very first moments after independence. And when I say first moments, I really mean the first months after uh, June 75, when you have lots of people running a country of 12 million people who have never run anything other than a guerrilla movement for independence. I interviewed the former um, health minister who uh, he remembers the first month's worth of, uh, of um, uh, cabinet meetings. And the president said to them, as he convened them twice a day for a month, he said, the reason we're meeting this often is because I have to learn how to be president and you have to learn how to be ministers and you're going to learn about how to be ministers from each other. And so I'm going to be exploring that moment as a moment of discovery. What was, you know, as these people came into power, what was it they thought of Portuguese colonization, uh, colonialism and how to overturn it in many ways they were new to the city because even if they had lived there before many of them hadn't been there in 10-15 years since the beginning of uh the liberation war or liberation struggle and so they were discovering the city that was two to three times bigger than it was when they had been there last uh and so i'm going to be interviewing not just uh former government officials many of whom are still alive one of the last places in africa you can do this uh but also people lower down on the bureaucratic hierarchy uh assistant ministers for instance or vice ministers but uh, i'm thinking more of department heads but i'm also thinking about for instance in the in the case of the hospitals i'm thinking of the nurses at the hospitals who in many ways ran the
0: show Well, that sounds like a fantastic project. I look forward to hearing more about that as it comes together. Well, so I want to thank you again for um, joining us on New Books in Anthropology. I've uh, really enjoyed the conversation.
1: Thanks so much, Jake. It was a real pleasure to be here, and uh, I really appreciate the opportunity.